Hey everyone. Hey everyone. Is it recording? Yeah. Okay, they'll cut this bit off. And even if they don't, that's okay. Hey everyone. My name is Sambal Siddiqui. And I'm Alana Mallon. And we are two new Cambridge City Councilors. And this is our weekly podcast, Women Are Here. I actually thought you forgot your name. Did I? (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) I'm like, who am I? I'm going through a crisis. So it's March. What a week. What a week. We have a lot to get through. So we're just going to get into it. Okay. No, we're going to try to be fun today, but can't promise. I mean, I try to be fun, but it doesn't always happen. Yeah, yeah. The fun. I'm pretty boring these days. Okay, so on Monday, we discussed uh, something called the tree ordinance. The tree protection yes. ordinance. How could I forget the How full name? Forget? So on Monday night, the Cambridge City Council voted to enact enhancements to our tree protection ordinance, which will help decrease the loss of our tree canopy and safeguard the valuable work that our Urban Forest Master Plan Task Force has been doing this whole year. And until they come out with their formal recommendations in a few months. So until they do, the ordinance is applicable for up to one year or until the recommendations of the task force are enacted, whichever comes first. So you may be hearing a lot about a tree moratorium. And even though this ordinance is designed to slow down tree cutting to mitigate the negative effects of climate change, uh, moratorium is not exactly the correct word. So, and this is because there's still various avenues for property owners to remove trees over the next year, especially when trees are dead, dying, dangerous, or uh, are negatively impacting their immediate surroundings. Yeah. So this was like um, a good eight weeks worth of work. Um, and so we just wanted to kind of talk about some of the exceptions to the um, the tree protection enhancements uh just to let people know. So there are exceptions to the prohibition on removing significant trees from a property over the next year, and they are um, for dead or dying trees. A certified arborist can certify that a tree has died or is dying and is a candidate for removal. They'll just need to complete a certification form after an inspection, which is pretty standard procedure for an arborist, and also dangerous trees. So again, a certified arborist can certify that the condition of the tree makes it dangerous to its surroundings, such as trees with branches that are entangled in power lines or trees that pose significant negative impacts to an existing adjacent structure. This amendment allows homeowners to prevent potential damage to their homes or their neighbor's homes that a dangerous tree could cause by making an exception for their removal after being approved by an arborist. Um, Another uh, exception is an overly dense canopy. So in areas where several trees are tightly packed together, Removing trees may be beneficial to the health of the overall entire tree canopy. Removing these trees would be allowed after an inspection by an arborist. And then in terms of an emergency removal, if a permit cannot be applied for beforehand because of an emergency situation, residents can apply for relief after the fact um, from the ordinance. So one member of the public who spoke at Monday's meeting shared that she had to take down already precarious dead trees in her yard ahead of the dangerously high winds um, this past week. And had the ordinance been in effect at this time, she could have still taken down the trees and applied for the city um, for emergency relief post taking them down. So other exemptions to this ordinance include city park projects that have already been um, gone through a community process, all projects over 25,000 square feet that have already been granted permits to move forward, and 100% affordable housing projects, regardless of size. And because it takes decades for a significant tree to take formation and thrive, the city will levy financial penalties for violating this updated ordinance. If a significant tree is removed in violation of the updated ordinance, the replacement fee is the equivalent of purchasing, planting, watering, and and maintaining 
the replacement tree for at least five years. For projects over 25,000 square feet under the current ordinance, that fee is approximately 800 to 1,000 per inch diameter, diameter at breast D- height. <laughs> diameter. Di- what did I say? Dynameter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Di- D- diameter. I can't read. Uh, DBH for short. That's what I know it as. DBH. DBH. Uh, these projects are being undertaken by typically large commercial developers who have deeper po- po- pockets than a Cambridge homeowner and can afford to pay a fine of 8000 to 10000 per tree into the city's tree fund. All of us um, advocated strongly on this. You especially did. Mm-hmm. That the, the penalty pe- for private owners would be far less. So for those of, um, homeowners who qualify for a city of Cambridge residential tax exemption, the fee would only be 10% of the previously uh, mentioned sums. And then there'll be no fee for property owners who are in financial assistance. So SNAP, WIC, receiving Social Security benefits. And then in addition to the fine to replace the tree, a resident who removes a significant tree over the next year in violation of the updated ordinance will owe a payment of no more than $300 per day until the fine is paid. So all the fines levied will go back into the city's tree fund for the express purpose of increasing city-owned trees to protect and grow the tree canopy here in Cambridge. And special shout-out to uh, city staff, um, Owen Reardon, our commissioner of public works, who's worked around the clock, Mm -hmm. uh, hasn't slept, uh, and other city staff. And also to the vice mayor, Devereaux, who has been working on this issue for a long time. Yeah, she um, she has done a lot, a lot of work, and I, I hope that, um, yeah, thank you, Vice Mayor yeah. Devereaux. So what else did we do this week? Oh, so it was a really busy week. So on Tuesday morning, after Monday night's meeting, we, we you and I, held a human services hearing in response to the death of Laura Levis in September of 26. Um, you may all remember this story. This young woman, 34 years old, walked to a Somerville hospital Um, having an asthma attack and died just feet from a locked emergency room door after having called 911 and no one found her. So we all learned, um, the council, many residents learned of the multiple failings on the part of the emergency 911 communications in the Somerville Hospital in November of last year when Laura's husband, Peter DeMarco, wrote a pretty powerful story in the Boston Globe magazine about the night she died and how he pieced together the story of that morning in the many ways uh, in which the emergency systems that Laura placed herself into for emergency emergency care failed her. Um, from the inadequate lighting and signage, a locked emergency room door, a 911 call that was placed to a regional call center, and critical details from 911 staff not being relayed to emergency responders, a nurse that didn't leave the hospital door far enough to see Laura on a bench yards away, and just so many other failings. Every minute that she wasn't found outside the ER was critical. Um, I this was a really hard hearing for me. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't to relitigate um all of those feelings as there have been since that Globe article many productive conversations between Mr. DeMarco and CHA officials. Um although this happened in Somerville, uh Cambridge Health Alliance is the parent organization for Somerville Hospital, so this was placed on our um hearing schedule to really talk to them. Um, about what the Cambridge Health Alliance is putting into place in the wake of this tragedy, um, not only at the Somerville Hospital, but through their other um, properties, so the Cambridge Hospital um, and others, to ensure that Laura's life wasn't in vain. Um, We need to make sure that the CHA is working hard to ensure that no one loses their life outside the ER doors uh, waiting for help to come. 
uh, it was um, really hard. It was really hard hearing. Uh, Laura's, yeah. Laura's husband was there and gave, made a really powerful statement in the beginning. And I think there have been productive conversations between he and the CHA president, uh, Pat Wardell was there, and their board president, Josh Posner. Um, and from what I understand, it's it's been a good productive conversation around what can they can do moving forward, what they have put into place, what they are going to be putting into place. There's going to be a final um, report from an outside investigator that um yeah it's uh fully hoag it's a law right. firm uh, so martha, and Ma- coakley, martha coakley is working on it is yeah. leading that so that'll get come out like end of march end of march so well i think it, we'll know more um we will the it, the purpose of the hearing was to, for the the city council to really ask questions of cha officials to make sure that um things are moving along that things are being productive and that um we really fully expect that this will not happen again, um, but also that there was some real lack of communication. Huge failures. Huge failures, um, both with, you know, her husband, their family, but also with public health officials, with um, the state, with the city. Um, the fact that we found out through the Boston Globe was really a, a huge failure. Yeah, and without that, our, without, you know, Peter doing what he did, we wouldn't have known. And so thank you to Peter, um, Laura's husband, who's been such a staunch advocate for her. And he's been working with state reps, uh, Christine Barber, Barber and Senator Jalen, and doing a lot of work on this. Uh, you know, he's put in, he's supporting two bills that are currently before us, which this week we've um, asked to, to do a resolution and support one called Laura's Law, which is to enhance patient safety and make sure some of the stuff that went wrong here never happens in any hospital right. around the state. And then also lifting the cap. So as a public hospital, uh, you know, you, it's a public hospital. So you, you, there's a cap and you can't sue beyond $100,000, which is, you know, in this case, the lawyers advised uh, Peter, you know, hundred. he wouldn't, he'd be actually paying them yeah <laughs> uh beyond the hundred thousand dollars to take it to just for legal fees legal mm-hmm. fees so uh this legislation's controversial but we we and the cha have said we're in favor of both the cha is actually not in favor of both they are in favor of the laura's law which is the enhancement piece they said that they have not put um i received a letter from pat wardell after the okay after the yeah. hearing, um, to say that they are still kind of looking mm-hmm. at the implications and, ho- you know, hoping that they will be able to support it, but it's not something that they have decided yet. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's not what we heard in the hearing. Yeah, so that's <laughs> that's why I received the letter, and I understand ah, that um, okay. Peter DeMarco also received that letter. I see, mm-hmm. I see. Well, to be, to lots to go on that front. Uh, later that day, we had another meeting. Oh, yes. We had the Better Bus Project yeah, meeting. Yeah. I'm not a committee member, but... Uh, I know you uh, came. That was I did come nice. briefly. <laughs> we heard briefly about the MBTA's Better Bus, Pro- bus Project um, as it relates to proposed changes to bus lines and service throughout Cambridge. So th- in a nutshell, the Better Bus Project is the MBTA's first step in their efforts to improve bus service and the system as a whole. Um, it's a part of a $8 billion modernization work, uh, which includes replacing subway fleets, upgrading tracks, signal switches, in, reinventing our the bus system. So we heard a lot about different routes. Uh, there's so much information on there, but I think there were some really good questions about 
how certain bus lines, the equity piece especially, and I'm looking forward to, to learning about the report on that. It's coming out, right? Yes. Or is it out? And the, Well, this is the public comment period, yeah. so this is a time when residents can review the proposed changes and, and really voice concerns or support over some of the things. So I think part of the one of them was the number one bus, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of us, including me, um, I take it on a pretty regular basis. Um, if you take the number one bus into Harvard Square, you have to get off like right by the Clover and then it kind of loops back around mm-hmm. the Johnson Gate. And then like it's kind of a it's a sucky system, right? Because yeah. <laughs> like, to get back on to come back to City Hall, I actually go down to Mount Auburn Street because there's no way to really get to one of those other stops. It's crazy. It's a crazy system. So they're tr- they're proposing taking off that loop and then just turning down by the new Smith Center. And then on the other end, um, at the Boston Medical Center, taking off a little piece of the loop there, which I, th- I think I could kind of get behind. The Where I had problems was kind of in the um, West Cambridge area, Harvard Square to West Cambridge with the 72 bus, the 74 and the 75, that I think they're really going to be making taking the bus a lot less desirable um, by removing stops by um, limiting some of the um, bus service at, at non-peak hours. I mean, I, I don't know if many people know this, but our CRLS students who live on that side of town, that's their bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were removing some of the stops, so some people will have to walk like eight to 10 minutes longer, which for lots of people, that's a problem, right? Like for elderly residents, for, for lots for of people. Children, yeah. People who are disabled. Um, but for kids who are counting on that for their getting to and from school, right? So off-peak hours is considered like after school, mm-hmm. right? So I just, I wanted to make sure that the parents at CRLS and the administration at CRLS really fully understood the implications of some of this. Um, and then some of the Aberdeen Avenue stops are going to be going away also um, during specific times. And like, what about elderly? Somebody wrote in. It was such a great letter. Like, what about elderly residents who use that to go to Star Market? Like, I just think there's not a lot of thought around some of this stuff. And I, during a time where the MBTA is increasing fares and then like removing service, I just felt like it was going to be a double whammy for for too many people. Yeah, and I think we have so much demand coming too, especially to this area with Mass and Maine coming. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things that they actually didn't present the raw data of you know this the signal times or any of that it was just i think there's a lot of more information that we need to and i felt bad for our like our city staff right. had to pre- present a mbta <laughs> I know. like it just was really hard for them i thought yeah they did a good job they did a great job, job i just yeah. they i just i felt like they were placed in sort of an untenable position yeah. where yeah. they were like we don't know we don't sorry, know exactly sorry, but sorry. here's what we know now yeah um, and I know that there was a MBTA presentation that night, night yeah. um, at CRLS that we couldn't go to because we were at a school committee roundtable. Um, school committee and city council had a roundtable to discuss the Tobin Montessori Vaseline Upper School um, school reconstruction. So this is, <laughs> this is such a big number. This is a $250 million project. Um, and... They have, because the Tobin School was actually on a former clay pit, which became a garbage dump, um, there's some significant environmental impacts that they have been looking into and digging wells and trying to figure out, like, what is actually in um, underneath the surface that um, will need to be remediated. So it's made it a little bit challenging and a little bit difficult. 
Um, the siting for the new school hasn't been decided. Um, they're doing a feasibility study over the next six months or so, and then the designs will begin. But right now, the school is uh, mostly on the Vassal Lane side, but that whole parcel goes all the way out to Huron Avenue. So it's they said you know Tuesday night that they might keep the footprint of the building and add on. They may tear the building or they may keep the existing building, do renovations, and do a, a, a um, what's it called? Add-on addition. Yep. Um, to or they might knock the whole thing down and build it in the same spot, or they might knock the whole thing down and build it in a different spot on the parcel. So they haven't really made those decisions, and I think some of the environmental imp- impacts of those decisions are still yet to remain to be seen. So we will see um, over the next six months where we end up. They I, We kind of asked them, like, <laughs> how does this decision get made? And um, they really said it will become clear kind of as they go through this feasibility study. So students are um, going to be moving out in June 2020. So that's next June, not this coming June, and then back for school year 2024. So one of the things that came up during the meeting that will be of interest of um, the Tobin parents, future Tobin parents and Vassal Lane parents, is it's unclear where the students will be in their swing space. Uh, For the last two school renovations, the King School and the um, Putnam Ave Upper Campus and the King Open Cambridge Street Upper Campus. The elementary school swing space was used, uh, the Longfellow School on Broadway in Mid-Cambridge, and then the upper school swing space was the third floor of the Kennedy Longfellow in East Cambridge on Spring Street. But because the Vaseline Upper School contains the SEI program, the Sheltered English Immersion Program, and is slightly larger, I think it's like 60 to 80 more kids, the number of students at Vaseline um, will make a move to the Kennedy Longfellow challenging based on the size it would actually be a better fit at the Longfellow School, which would put the Tobin Montessori kids at the Kalo for four years. There are a lot of real challenges with that option, however, um, as I see them. Um, both the Tobin and the Kalo have the state, same start time and end time, unlike right now when the upper school, which starts and ends an hour later, which would cause kind of, I, I think, a real problem at drop-off and pick-up. You know, that's like 600 kids getting dropped off at the same time at 7.55 in the morning and then trying to deal with buses in the afternoon. But then staggering that start time would be a challenge for Tobin staff and parents. Um, it would probably be challenging um, to have that many small people, ages three years old to fifth grade in the same building. And busing or driving very young students all the way from West Cambridge clear across the st- city is challenging, um, to say the least. So three-year-olds cannot be bused. Um, it is against the rules. Yep. <laughs> you know, so as soon as they turn four, they can be bused. But so these conversations are currently underway with school administration and school leadership right now. And we'll know more in the next few weeks about what the plan is for where the swing spaces will be. But I think that's going to affect a lot of parents, um, including myself, <laughs> including you. <laughs> so the feasibility study will come out. I th- or November goal is she said fall, fall. and then. Perhaps that following January, we'd have some decisions on some of these key questions of ours, what the building looks like and where it's going to be seated. A lot of the conversation on Tuesday night also was geared towards the environmental impacts. And uh, they had they had a lot of those big words that they used on environment. I, I had not heard of like most of the types of the, what is it called? the um, Not the odors, but... Do you remember? Like the volatile organic yes. compounds? <laughs> yes. VOCs? VOCs for short. I was like, oh my gosh. So, well, I also did not know that um, 
so Massachusetts has like really strict laws about what you can put in your yes. landfills. And so for two, the two previous projects that we had mm-hmm. um, where there were environmental impacts, we had to truck that. Removed them. We removed some soil and trucked it to Ohio oh. yep. where they would take that type of soil or the that type of waste. And so that came up as an issue that, you know, we, of course we don't want to truck this stuff to another state that has a, you know, laxer environmental laws, right? impact laws. But then I was like, I asked, have we done this before? And they said yes. So yeah, um, it may not have been as much, right? Because the other two weren't cited on on this is garbage dump, yeah, dumps. Huge. But um, that was a little like, oh. Yeah. And I okay. also, I said that the, the public process here will be critical. And I think people are already feeling, you know, we have roundtables. There is no public comment for a reason. There has been one meeting, but there's going to be a lot of input into this process. Well, yeah. And the size of the school is going exactly. from like, I, I didn't write it down for this, but I think it was like 150,000 square feet to like 270,000 yeah. square feet, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big, I mean, if you think about the one, the new King Open School on Cambridge Street, it's so much bigger than what was there previously. Oh my gosh. That's almost, that's on track. Tr- trek for uh september september so it's going to be a beautiful building Um, but it's also it's big what do you build it does feel like is this a school or (laughs) Or like logan airport or logan airport terminal a (laughs) 100 percent. every time i drive down anyway uh on wednesday morning we took a visit to the cambridge port school uh on elm street and visited third graders in the library so these kids have been reading about Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Re- Ru- Ruth Bader Ginsburg as part of learning about inspiring women in government. And we aren't as uh, amazing as these women, but or, or notorious or as notorious. RBJ. <laughs> uh, but we are happy to be invited as part of uh, a lesson in women in government. And we had some great questions from the kids, like. How do you become a city councilor? How long do you serve? What kind of problems do you solve? How much money do you make? That, that was a big topic. <laughs> that was a huge topic. Yeah. Uh, and also, what? if um, Donald Trump was our boss. Oh yeah, I loved that. That was good. <laughs> and when we told them no, they were like, like cheering, so happy. Uh, what do city councilors do? We also taught them a new word, uh, constituent. So we explained this means people like them who live in Cambridge and can voice their concerns and ideas to us, and. These kids are already showing themselves to be activists, and they voice concerns about trees and pedestrian safety. It was awesome. It was awesome. It was really, I'm like, after, it was a tough couple of days. Yeah. Um, And just to have that, they were so good. They asked so many great questions. And then um, we were mobbed by autograph seekers Uh, afterwards, which was amazing. It was amazing. uh, I'm never going to forget that little girl. She asked me to sign her arm. Like, just didn't even have a cast. She was just like, please sign my arm. It was just the cutest. So that's the one that she raised her hand and told you that she also lived in Ringe Towers. And so, like, I thought that was a really powerful moment where she was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You lived there, too. I know. That was was really, it, it got me. I was a little bit like, oh. God, I got you yeah, in your feelings me place. In my feelings, right? <laughs> One mom told me that her daughter came home to say that two very famous <laughs> people came to our school today. So I was like, "Were you expecting that it was like Cardi B and Nicki Minaj or something?" <laughs> Rihanna. And then you were like, yeah. "Oh, it's a lot ensemble." <laughs> yeah. All right, sure. But it was a highlight. Uh, thank you for to Liz. Liz the librarian for uh, letting us come and talk to the students. Uh, right after that, I had a public safety meeting 
which I often do because I'm a member. And mm-hmm. uh, Counselor Kelly loves having these. Uh, and the topic was cold cases. So it was kind of cool because, you know, you would have liked it because of your interest in border and whatnot. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> our police department uses the National Institute of Justice uh, is de- definition of a cold cage, case, which is any case whose probative investigative leads have been exhausted. So just to give you some information, between 1990 and 2017, there have been 62 homicides in Cambridge. That's really a lot. Yeah. Seven are unsolved and not being worked on due to age and lack of solvability. So they're cold. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then 10 are ongoing, uh, including the untimely deaths of Mr. Wilson uh, Rochelle Robinson and then Charlene Haynes mm-hmm. uh, before that, uh, two of which uh, Rochelle Robinson was 2018, mm-hmm. Paul Wilson was 2019 recently, recently mm-hmm. and Charlene Haynes was 2016. So the district uh, attorney's office has jurisdiction over murder cases, uh, but our police are uh, heavily involved. But it was a good discussion. The police have a really, you've seen it, they have a great booklet on crime statistics yeah. and the ones for 20. 18 will be released uh, soon. So we can share that. So they've solved 52 homicides. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. I forget what the national compared to other cities and of our size, uh, but I I think we do a really good job. I mean, in in the case of Charlene Haynes, Haynes, I would really love to see her killer come to justice. Yeah. And this has been a really emotional, um, difficult case for so many people and the fact that it's unsolved and no one is serving any sort of time and this mm-hmm. is it's something like I actually think about a lot and the Rochelle um, Robinson one was the one where the girl was East Cambridge the East Cambridge she was on her attacked bike on, um, what, you, you were, there was a bike involved yeah uh, um, and so that was another one I remember talking about yeah. this last year and just being she was 15 yeah 15 high school student right so the the, the police officers did say uh, and Commissioner Bard was there that I think there's an impression that people aren't working on these cases, you know, uh, behind the scenes. But there's a there are officers who are assigned. Uh, you know, there's a lot of advances these days in DNA and other things that have helped solve historic, you know, cold cases technically. And so uh, there is being work done, and uh, I think you don't see much of that. But actually, we were told that the Cambridge Police Department will. Um, notify everyone of death anniversaries, murder anniversaries Mm -hmm. on Facebook. So I'm going to start looking out for that because they do do that. With Uh, it, like with an update of the case or anything? Yeah. Yeah. If there's anything of, it's been three years since this. If you have any more information, please reach out. So they they will keep doing that and they do get in touch with the families. uh, But I think it does feel like what is happening day to day. It's unclear because it disappears from the media. Right. Right. And so, but... There are, there are all these families whose lives have been changed and uh, they're waiting, wait, waiting for justice. So right. it, was a, it was a good meeting. So uh, later that night, we were both at, also at a different meeting with an ordinance committee hearing where we approved uh, an ordinance that would legally require the city to build permanent protected bicycle lanes whenever a road included in the Cambridge Bicycle Plan's protected network is reconstructed under, under the city's five-year sidewalk and street plan. So now what will happen is uh, we will vote for the ordinance in front of the full city council. Mm-hmm. I had to leave early on that mm-hmm. one because I'm solo parenting this week. Um, one of the things I was 
talking about at the meeting was that a lot of the streets that are included in the city's five-year sidewalk and street plan are not part of the Cambridge Bicycle Plan's protected network. So um, one of the questions I asked was, well, (laughs) does this, like, mean that we're not doing any bike lanes um, that aren't on this? And so the the city told us that they are proceeding, actually, with some ideas on some quick builds. So that was was part of the meeting that I was actually excited to hear about, that there will be – it just was like, is this going to stop? Yeah, um, some of the some of the bike infrastructure that is moving forward. So, um, I look forward to that. That'll be two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Right. Okay. So March eighteenth. Uh, All right. Um, yesterday, I got to go to the state house and do some advocacy work for Cradles to Crayons, which um, remember you and I and um, a bunch of the um, folks from the mayor's office actually went and did volunteering one Saturday to to really understand what Cradles to Crayons does here in the community. We have around 255,000 um, kids here in Massachusetts who are, who are what they're calling clothing insecure, um, which means that they don't have enough. So for winter months, they don't have boots, they don't have um, jackets, they don't have hats and mittens, um, they don't have appropriate footwear um, to participate in sports or gym um, or even wear to school. And um, this was really an opportunity for uh, Representative Marjorie Decker to partner with her legislative um, friends. Um, some of the, there was a lot of uh, state representatives there to really try to find out um, how to better support this great, amazing organization. That you know, when you think about your hierarchy of needs, right? It's food, it's housing, but this this is also really important too. Um, and like I said, w- there's 255,000 kids that are are currently. Um, what they're calling clothing insecure, um, and under their current financial constraints, cradles of crayons can really only handle around 150,000 of those kids, and they're reaching them. They are actually reaching a lot of kids here in Cambridge through um, a school market program that I actually helped uh, start several years ago when I was in the mayor's office and working with Food for Free. All of our school markets that exist, our school food markets that exist, partner with Cradles to Crayons four times a year to ensure that they have the kids that are coming through and the families are actually connected to um, clothing resources. So it was really interesting kind of hearing some of the state reps who, some of them that were there grew up in poverty and the stories that they had around clothing were really powerful. So Marjorie talked about and I, you know, <laughs> shared a similar when she was saying, and I was, she was sharing a similar experience. Like you got one pair of shoes at the beginning of school, and if you outgrew them, so that you still wore them, like, and you you didn't complain about them because you knew that that was kind of the deal. Like you got one pair of shoes, you got a pair of school shoes, and you got a pair of sneakers. Um, and then there was this rep that came to talk about um, he was in foster care and. In the town that he lived in, there was a church that, you know, took donated clothes from from wealthier families and gave them to the kids in the foster care system. And he showed up at school at the beginning of the school year wearing kind of a polo shirt. And this kid walked up to him and said, that's my shirt. My name's on the inside of it. And like all of these kids started teasing him and the the teacher had to get involved. And I think this rep Marjorie was saying was in his 70s. So that's a memory that has stayed with him this whole time, right? For decades of 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 being clothing insecure right like needing this charity and um and and what a what a real moment that was for him um 
to feel like not just that you're a foster kid, but you're taking clothes from other kids in, right in your own community. And so Lynn Margario, who's actually a Cambridge resident and founder and CEO of Cradles to Crayons, was saying because they have such a regional approach to donations, that would never happen now. Um, but it's really, it's so personal. And so um, all of these people just got up and shared all these stories. And there was this one woman who actually lives here in Cambridge, um, a Kennedy Longfellow mom, who um, connected through our school food market program for her daughter to say that because of Cradles of Crayons and the clothing that they got through through this organization, she was able to like pay her light bill. She was able to buy food for her family. So when you think about the hierarchy of needs, clothing kind of falls to the bottom, but it's really, people are making choices. People are, um, uh, they're outgrowing their shoes in the middle of the school year. And so it's really been important to for me, it's been really important to support this organization um, and connect them to our Cambridge kids, but it was really good to see other legislators really understand how many kids in their communities are clothing insecure and what they can do at a legislative level to make sure that Cradles or Crayons is getting what they need. Yeah, I heard a little bit about that uh, later that night uh, through Marjorie because she was at the uh, Friends of Sarah's annual fundraiser. She was the speaker, so she spoke about uh, a few of the constituents who had come and spoken oh, really? about, um, yeah, she, about clothing security and being homeless. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, thank you to Marjorie Decker for, and the other reps, uh, and you who have, you know, are keeping this issue at the forefront. We, uh, talked a little bit about that at the fundraiser and, uh, the, this fundraiser, this organization is really great because it helps students directly. Uh, with scholarships, uh, particularly rich kids. So thank you to the parents who donate. There's so much money raised thanks to the folks who provide uh, resources, their time, energy. Uh, it's it does make a difference. It as a fir- if you're first generation, if you're low income and you're going to college, any the, little bit helps. any bit helps. Uh, Five hundred for books, six hundred for. Uh, you know, any any it's a these thousand dollar scholarships are making a real difference. So that we heard they read statements from students who are at UMass, who are at uh, Simmons, who are so grateful for mm-hmm. for this. And so the thank you to the parents. This I'm such a I'm so lucky to have gone to that school because the network is so important. And so, um, you know, I was really touched by uh, everyone who came out and donated. I'm really sorry I missed that last night. Like I said, I'm solo parenting this week, yeah. so it's been really it's been hard for me to get out to these nighttime things. But um, if you just thinking about six hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, paying that back costs way more than six hundred or a thousand dollars. So any of that like anything that you can take off the plate of somebody who um, who is low income, who who is going to college, who is trying to better um, get a better education, I think whatever we can be doing here. So thanks to everybody who donated and went last night. I'm sorry I missed it, especially since I'm going to be a CRLS um, mom mom next year. Um, so one of the last things we wanted to talk about was a really sad accident that happened yesterday, um, a construction accident. Two um, workers were injured and one was killed actually working on the MIT dorm at 120 Vassar Street. The preliminary report from last night is that the crew was working on a lower floor when material collapsed down on top of workers from an above floor. So three workers were transported to an area hospital, and one of the workers, a 41-year-old male from Taunton, later died at the hospital. Um, the two other construction workers sustained non-life-threatening uh, injuries. And I just heard from 
I kind of put out the word to all of our unions to figure out um, where this the worker who passed uh, he was actually a laborer so this is a really this is a really sad and tragic accident um, and I, I'm I'm looking for, I just wonder what happened yeah um, but we wanted to let people know so we have some events coming up. Um, Cambridge Digs Deep uh, session on March 21st from 6 to 8. Uh, food will be at 5.30. It will be at the main cafeteria at Ringe. Uh, it's going to aim to support restorative healing through providing race-based affinity spaces for discussing and processing identity and sharing perspectives. Uh, and, and these moderated affinity groups will process content from the first two deep sessions um, if you're unable to attend the prior sessions, there is a video of Dr. Monte's keynote video uh, that um, we'll be sharing, and it's on the website uh, for context prior to attending this session. So that's, that'll be good. So she won't have to do like a refresher. Yeah, she won't have to do it over. Oh, that's yeah. good. Okay. Um, one of the other things that's going on is uh, Conversations on the Edge, uh, Growing Divides in Cambridge, A Tale of 2.0 Cities. So this is um, being put on by the Cambridge Community Foundation, who has done a lot of work around housing insecurity and what's happening here in Cambridge. And this will be a really great discussion. It's going to be March 21st. Um, same night. Same night. I was just like, same night? Yeah. I, I want to call Keith and be like, can we change it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So TBD, okay. it is six, tentatively happening. Yeah. 6 to 7.30 at the Central Square Library. Um, moderated by Gita Pradhan of the Cambridge Community Foundation. And panelists for the event include Chuck Collins, the director of the program in, on inequality and the common good at the institution, Institute for Polity Studies, um, Sarah Gallup, who is the co-director at the MIT Office of Government and Community Relations, where she serves as a liaison to Cambridge government, and um, Damon Smith, who's the principal at the Cambridge Ridge Latin School. So hopefully both of those things won't be happening at the same time because I'm interested in uh, attending both. Um, and as we have discussed before, we cannot clone ourselves. We can't. We, we can't. can't. And I'm particularly interested in this issue as I'm chairing the Marriage Displacement Task Force. Right. And so uh, we had a meeting on Sunday. So we are actively talking about this issue. And so I'd like to, You'd like to be, there. be there. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a few more events. Uh, this Thursday, actually, March 7th, Introduction of Women of Color in Feminist History. Massachusetts and beyond. It's 5.15 to 8.30 at the Cambridge Main Library. Uh, where it's, it's Women's History Month in March. Today. So Today's today, March 1st. Oh, it's March 1st. So we'll be talking, uh, we'll be going to a lot of these events. So this one, my friend Stephanie Grand from high school is, is the speaker. And so she has been studying gender and poverty reduction at the University of London. And so we'll hear uh, a lot about that and uh, about um, feminist history, highlighting women of color who've shaped the stories in the future. So it's free and open. There'll be dessert. So yesterday when I was at the State House, there was a big suffrage um, uh, celebration. And there was all these women just like walking around the State House with sashes that said votes for women. I was like, how great. That's awesome. <laughs> it was really great. Um, and then so the last thing, um, the Cambridge Library is undergoing a strategic plan, and they want to hear from you. So there's a few more community forums where you can give your feedback on what you'd like um, to see at the Cambridge Public Library or what you'd like not to see at the Cambridge Public Library anymore. So there's a session for all residents Thursday, March 7th at 6.30 p.m., which is also the same time <laughs> as the introduction to women of color and feminist history. Um, 
But then there's also one for specifically for parents and caregivers, which is Saturday, March 9th, 10.30 a.m. at the main library um, in the Curious George room. There's also a survey online where um, we can tweet it out, but there's um, a survey online that you can do if you can't attend one of the forums. And then there's also whiteboards where you can write your ideas um, in the libraries and other municipal buildings collecting ideas from residents. There's one in the foyer of City Hall. Um, and then do you want to talk about this last thing? Oh, yeah. So I got a text from my council aide talking to me about National Dis- Sarah, uh, National Disconnect Day. And she was like, are you in? And I was like, what is that? Well, first of all, what is it? And so it's basically you literally disconnect from um, your phone, TV. You just unplug to do something that's important to you. All day? All day. Uh, it's like a, having a detox. So... <laughs> yeah, so it's a 25-hour, no, sorry, 24-hour. There's 25-hour. 24, it's a, It's Friday, it's been a long week. 24-hour period from sundown to sun, sun, sun up to sundown to unplug, unwind, relax, and do things other than using today's technology, electronics, and social media. I would, I honestly, I'm, I hate social media. That's why I never tweet. Uh, so this wouldn't be too hard for me, but. But you are constantly on your phone. You know, texting people. I know. <laughs> texting you. I know. Do you think that you could? I could do it. I could do it. I would like to do it. When is it? Sunday? I think it's I think it's supposed to be the second Friday in March. Like on a work day? Yeah. That's dumb. No, maybe it's tomorrow. I can't get this straight. She said tomorrow, but I'm looking up all these conflicting dates. But March um, 2nd? Yo, no, it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. She's absolutely right. It's tomorrow. Um, it's from sundown on Friday, March 1st to sundown on Saturday, March 2nd. So people all over the country are putting their phones in sleeping bags, okay? So in it says in sleeping bags. Yeah. So a, a 2017 study conducted by Rewire says 80% of those with smart smartphones say that checking their phone is the first thing they do in the morning, and they keep their phone with them for 22 hours of the day. Ooh. Anyway, I what know do they do those other two hours. They sleep. <laughs> like what? What are people doing? <laughs> This article is anyway. I what, I will try. A, is this a journal no, that is? A, it's it's a real event. This is on the news. Mm. Uh, so it, it's. I think I'm gonna maybe I'll tweet. Over a hundred thousand people have joined the hashtag unplug movement. So oh. hashtag unplugging. I'm headed to New York this weekend. So so you can't unplug. I will be with my cousin. I know, but you're gonna be like. Yeah. Like, what's this restaurant? And like, yeah, right. well, yeah, 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 yeah. If I ever make it, the weather's pretty bad. There. I mean, I think, um, I, I actually would like for myself. Here's what I would like to do: mm. is like when I get home, put my phone in my purse, and leave it at the door until my kids go to bed. Like, not even look at it, and just have like some time where you just don't even look at your phone every That's day. A, yeah. Versus some whole day. <laughs> hey. It's it's worth trying. I may do it. All right, I'm going to challenge you to do it. For okay, I won't hours, text you. And I'm going to challenge myself to do that thing that I just said that I keep saying I'm going to do, and then I just keep not doing I know, it. I know it's the busy life of uh, your city councilors who are always. Well, you're also like phone. trying to arrange all your things for your kids and like there's meetings and you're trying to calls. You, like your calendar. It's not like you pull out your purse calendar and like write Those it down with days. your pencil. Those were the days. Right, you have to use your phone for that. Like, 
I know. Even like my boarding pass is on my phone. I know. Right? Like every. Well, that would be so funny if you got to the airport and you were like, my boarding pass is on my phone, but I'm disconnected. So you have to let me on. <laughs> They'd be like, what? They'd be like, get we're going to arrest you. Anyway, so that was our podcast. There's a lot of information. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please join us next week if you still are interested. <laughs> <laughs> we will try to be more fun next yeah, week. Yeah, we're, we're Debbie Downers today. but uh, we're not totally Debbie Downers. That yeah. tree protection ordinance, that was rough to get through, like, right off the bat. Yeah. People were like, we want a little, like... I know, I went right into it. I didn't, yeah, I didn't have to... Well, we usually start with TV. I had no time to watch TV this week or veg out. You know what I saw last night? Hmm. You know that I'm a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan. And yeah. We, like, watch it. Like, and usually it's just fun and funny, but they have had episodes that were... That deal with, like, a really important topic. Like, yeah. they've... they've They've actually like really delved deep into like racism in the police department, mm. and um, that was a really powerful show where I was like, you weren't expecting it. You were like, whoa, that just happened. Last night they had a really good one on the Me Too movement and oh, sexual wow. assault, and I the whole time was like, I can't believe this is the show. It's like all these characters that you love, and they're usually really fun and funny, and that was this really heavy topic, and they handle it with like grace and I, I don't know. I gotta watch that show. If you don't watch. The show in general, um, I would definitely call it. The one last night was really good. The one on race and policing was incredible. Um, and there was one other like really heavy topic where like I have cried like all, in all three shows where I was like, wow, this is they did mm. a phenomenal job. Um, but that's, that's the only thing that I've seen this week. You should watch Blackish because they do the same thing. They but take that, that's like every week. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and like I, as much as I want to do that every week, like yeah. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is like it's funny and like escapist and like I feel like we talk about race and bias and yeah all the time here in Cambridge and we should be but like when I watch TV it's usually around it's about serial killers or like dumb police episodes or vampires or vampires or vamp I mean I I run the gamut <laughs> either serial killers or vampires gotcha. <laughs> anything with like a lot of blood Grace and Frankie is good too I have like tried to watch that show. Oh, I know. God, I love it. Mm. I just love those two and their friendship, and they're so cute. And That's gonna be us. I don't think I'm gonna age that well. Yes, we will. Mm. Mm. You've seen my mom. She's great, though. I mean, I meant like you've seen my oh. mom. She's like, oh my god, mom! Thank Wait. God she doesn't know what a podcast is. <laughs> I mean, like you've seen my mom. She looked great, but like. I don't have, I have more of my dad's genes, mm, you know, like, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, she's, my mom is so beautiful. I love her so much. I think you're going to age very gracefully. I hope so. My We're, mom is just And then we'll get so a network great. TV show. Netflix, here we come. Here we come. Who owns it? G Bezos or what? Is that Amazon? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. it's not Amazon. No, I know. Who owns Netflix? Not Bezos, right? Oh, I don't know. I don't, who owns it? Okay, we're going to make a call to Netflix to get our own show. <laughs> Hope you have a great weekend. See you guys next week. Take care. Bye.